0: He is risen. Well, Good morning. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, I'd just like to open us in a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that death has no sting. We thank you that hell has no victory. For one reason and one reason only, that you sent your one and only son to die on the cross that we might be saved. And we praise you and we thank you for that. Pray now now as we turn to your word, Lord God, that you would help us open our ears, mind first, and our hearts, mind first, Lord God, that your word would speak directly to us. We come this morning not looking for the words of a man like me, but the words of your Holy Spirit. Your word is alive and active. We pray, Lord God, that your word would have its way in our hearts today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing this morning in our study of the book of Nehemiah. Before you turn there... I uh, just want to tell a short story. It's a story of illustration, at least I hope it will be. Uh, three years ago, uh, I was asked by the company that I worked for to set up a marketing and trading natural gas marketing and trading business in Houston. That was a challenge, but it was also a unique opportunity to build a business from scratch. And by scratch, I mean I—it uh, was just me starting out. And I had the ability to hire every employee that we hired. I had the ability to set it up in the way that we wanted to set it up. The shareholders didn't really want Jesus to be a part of that. They're non-Christians. They wanted profits to feature front and center. And that was okay. Most businesses are in the business of making money. And this is no exception. But having the opportunity to set that up the way I wanted to set it up was a unique opportunity. And I set out initially to set up the business differently. I wanted the business to have godly values. Without being a Christian company, I wanted there to be biblical values to run through the core of everything we did. And it was tricky, and it was difficult, because that's not what the shareholder was looking for, but I pressed very hard to get biblical values like integrity and honesty. Things like treating people fairly and with dignity. And so when I interviewed people, I made it quite clear that you're going to come for, uh, to work for this company. This is the kind of things we're going to stand for. Yes, we're going to work hard. Yes, we're going to roll up our sleeves. Yes, we're going to make money for our shareholder. But at the end of the day, we're going to do it differently. And so that was quite a challenge. Uh, we did it. We got it up and running. Hired about uh, 40 people. Uh, a lot of work to do. Uh, get all that stuff started up from scratch. And about three months into it, we had a little problem. Uh, one of our traders was cheating. He was lying about the price at which he sold natural gas. In a couple of places he said I sold the gas for five dollars and three cents when he really sold it for five dollars. And that three cents, well it doesn't sound like a lot of money when you multiply it times a large volume of natural gas, it's a large amount of money. He wanted himself to look good. He inflated his profits a little bit. So when we caught him, we brought him in, I sat him down I said look, We're not going to put up with this. This is not the kind of behavior that this company stands for. We can't run a business like this. Not only will you go to jail, but it's totally contrary to the way I want this company to run. You do that again, one more time, I'm going to fire you. Understood? Understood. Two months later, he did it again. My vice president, Bruce, walked in. He said... I don't know why he's doing it. I don't know what to do. He's making money, he's being profitable. He's a good trader. He's not evil. I just don't know why he's doing it. I don't know what to do. I said, I know what to do. I said, last time he was in my office, I told him he did it again, I'd fire him. And I stood up and I walked out and I fired him. What I wanted to do is I wanted to grab him by the scruff of his neck. I wanted to take him out to the front door. I wanted to open up the door, I wanted to kick him in the rear end and see him sprawl across the sidewalk. That's what I wanted to do, but I don't think that's what God would have wanted me to do, particularly since our office is on the 25th floor. (laughs) But it had the desired effect. We haven't had that problem. That is to say, we haven't had that problem since. I knew that we couldn't build a God-honoring business with that kind of sin present. Now I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to start in chapter 5, but before you turn there, I just want to give you a sort of brief synopsis of where we've come. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king in Susa, and his brother came to him from a journey to Jerusalem and told Nehemiah that the walls in Jerusalem had been down, had been knocked down, trampled, the gates burned. This actually had happened 140 years ago, but Nehemiah didn't know it. God put on Nehemiah what we call a, a godly uh, grief, and it had an impact on Nehemiah so much so that he broke down and wept, and it God put it on his heart to go rebuild the walls. And so he went to the king and he asked for leave of absence. He traveled from Susa to Jerusalem, where he uh, then began with the intention of rebuilding the walls. And in chapter two, he took an inspection of the walls to understand the full weight of what was there. In the book of Nehemiah, the walls, particularly the walls, as they're trampled and crumbled represent a man's sin, the sin of the Jews, which had taken place many years prior. And God's glory, God's glory had been trampled just as those walls had been knocked down and trampled. And so that's the imagery we have of the walls. And then in chapter 3, he gathered up the people and he split them up and divided and conquered and he started to rebuild the walls. And then in chapter 4, we saw some opposition. Some non-Jewish leaders didn't like the fact that they were rebuilding the walls, and so they came in and they did two things. One, they criticized them, tried to discourage them, and then secondly, they threatened them. They threatened to kill them. And two weeks ago, Bear covered the opposition associated with the the, uh, discouragement and reminded us that whenever we do God's work, we should expect to have opposition. It's going to happen. You shouldn't be surprised by it. God's work is always difficult, but God will give us the strength to continue. And last week, uh, Skeet spoke about the threats. and He had that really cool sword up here. I I wanted to bring one of those, but I couldn't figure out how to fit it into my sermon at all. But I'm going to figure that out one of these days. You're going to see that sword again. I don't know why. I'll figure that out. But anyway, Skeet's point, other than the sword, which was frankly a distraction for me, as I recall, Ski's point was that we, we not only have to work for the Lord, that is with the trowel in one hand, we have, to, we have to fight for the Lord, we have to defend things, we have to be ready to fight for the Lord. And that came out pretty clear last week, so that's where we're at. So now we're hitting chapter 5, and chapter 5, I like to think of chapter 5 as halftime. Nehemiah came out and he gathered all his people up and they're going to rebuild this wall, it took 52 days, and somewhere in the middle of this thing it's, it reached half its height, and that's kind of where we're at right now, it's just halftime, they're half done. And in chapter 5, unlike the opposition that came from the outside, Nehemiah encounters a problem from the inside. And that's what we're going to talk about today. It's a problem of sin, and it's a very public kind of sin. They had made great progress, but now they encounter a great problem. So turn, if you will, to Nehemiah chapter 5, and we'll begin reading there in verse 1. You can follow along your Bibles or on the screen behind me. Nehemiah 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people, And of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help it, for the other men have our fields and our vineyards. Now, this is a very serious problem. And if you pull it apart, you see that there are really four problems. First problem is that there's a famine in the land, which means there's a food shortage, which means that food prices have gone up a lot. Secondly, in order to buy food and to pay the king's taxes, they had to borrow money. And they were borrowing money from their rich Jewish brothers, and their rich Jewish brothers were charging high rates of interest. The third problem was that they couldn't pay off the loans. And so they had mortgaged their fields and their houses in order to pay these guys back, but that still wasn't enough. And these rich Jewish bankers were then actually taking their sons and their daughters as slaves so that they could sell them to foreigners and pay back the loans. Now, that sounds pretty horrific, and it is. And it's a direct violation of God's law. If you turn to Exodus chapter 22, you'll see that these things were wrong. These guys were caught in a vicious cycle, and it was also disobedient, because in Exodus 22 and verse 25, you'll see that God had, God's law had encouraged the Jews to loan money to poor Jews, but they were not allowed to charge interest. You could loan them $100, and you could expect them to pay $100 back, but you were not allowed Jew to Jew to charge interest. These guys were charging high rates of interest. Exodus 22:25 says, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. These guys were doing that. Leviticus 25, and verse 35 to 37. The people were also encouraged to provide food for the poor Jews, but they weren't allowed to make a profit. They couldn't, They weren't allowed to make a profit off the food they gave or sold to the poor Jews. Exodus 25, beginning in verse 37, says, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Then it says, Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. And these guys were doing exactly that. In the middle of a famine... They were charging them high prices for their food, making a profit, and they were loaning them money at large interest rates. And what they were doing was wrong, and it was discouraging. The rich Jews were taking advantage of the poor Jews, and they were being greedy, and they were doing it in a time of economic hardship, when chips were down. They were violating God's law. The sin was a significant problem. It was public And it was widespread, and it was causing a problem. The problem was causing was division. Sin causes division, and division leads to failure. Sin causes division, and division leads to failure. So Nehemiah had a crisis. The people were angry. Division was setting in all because of the sin. God's work on the wall had stopped. And Nehemiah knew that he couldn't get the wall project going again until he addressed this sin. So what does he do? Well, we continue on in Nehemiah chapter 5, beginning of verse 6. Nehemiah speaking now. He said, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and officials. I said to them, you are extracting interest, each from his brother.'" And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been extracting from them. So what did Nehemiah do? Well, he did seven things, which we read in this this, uh, section seven things. The first thing he did is he got angry. He got angry. He got angry, I think, for four reasons. One, what was happening was wrong. It was clearly a violation of God's law. Secondly, the victims were poor and helpless. By their own admission, they couldn't do anything about it. They had already gotten in so deep that they were uh, selling their children as slaves, and some of them had already done so. But they were poor and helpless. They couldn't change the situation themselves. Thirdly, they were making God look bad. And fourthly, and maybe the most uh, shocking thing of all, is that the sinners, the guys who were doing this, were the leaders in the Jewish community. He calls them nobles and officials. These are the very guys working next to each other on the wall. These are the very guys that are supposed to be out there setting an example and leading and governing and doing things right. And these are the very guys that are loaning money at high interest rates. And if you were to look back at chapter 3, you'd see that some of these guys were sitting on the sidelines. They refused to work. They were being lazy. They were living off the fat of the interest and the stuff that they'd received, the fields and the houses that they'd been given in mortgage, and they they had their slaves. Well, they need to go out and rebuild the wall for? But some of them were working. In fact, seven rulers of the Jewish community are listed as working along the wall. Now, you want a cause for division, I'll give you this scenario. I'll put you to work here on this wall, and the guy standing next to you, working right next to you, is your banker. The guy working next to you is the guy that gave you a loan so you could go buy a grain, and then when you couldn't go pay back the loan with those gigantic interest rates that he was charging you, he mortgaged your field. Now he owns your house, too. And oh, when you couldn't pay that back and then when that wasn't enough money, he came over and he knocked on your door and he said, oh, I see you've got a very nice teenage daughter there. I'm thinking maybe you might want to get out of this economic problem that you're in. Oh, really, how would I do that? Well, she's an attractive young lady. She might like to come and work at my house. Put those two people working together with a trial, and I think you're going to have an emergency room problem. The banker's going to have one of those things called a, a trolectomy or something. But it's going to cause a huge amount of division, and, and this is the thing that Nehemiah is faced with. So first thing it was he got angry, but he didn't say anything yet because he knows that saying things in anger is a bad idea. Some of us, yours truly, have learned that the hard way. So the second thing he does is he cools off. Gets his emotions under control. And how does he do that? He says, Well, I took counsel with myself, or the King James Version says, My heart consulted in me. He didn't need to run off and ask anybody. He knew that what was going on here it was sin. It was clear from God's word. This is just wrong. He didn't need to go consult anybody. He just consulted with himself, got his emotions under control, cooled off. And the third thing he did was he confronted the sinners directly. Verse 7, it says, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And it's not clear, but it's pretty clear. I think that he did this privately. He went to the nobles and the officials and he confronted them. And that's a hard thing to do. A couple of things he didn't do. He didn't gossip. He didn't slander them by talking to a bunch of other people about them. He went directly to them and confronted them. The fourth thing he did is he told them what they were doing was wrong. He made it clear that what the sin was that they were doing so they would understand why he was confronting them. He said, you're exacting usury in verse 7. Usury is the charging of high interest rates on loans. And he reminded them that charging huge rates of interest with your brothers was wrong. In fact, you shouldn't be charging any interest at all. God said so. The fifth thing he did was he rebuked them in public. Now, I can only assume this happened because his session with them in private didn't have much effect. Obviously, the nobles and officials didn't immediately say, Oh, gosh, you got me there. We weren't thinking very clearly. We should go fix this. So Nehemiah took the second step, and he confronted them in public. Why did he confront them in public? Well, I think he confronted them in public because the sin that they were doing was quite grievous, and it was already public. In fact, it came to him in the midst of a, of a large gathering of the people, or even the wives, which is an unusual thing in your Bibles to see the wives speak up in public that this is wrong. And so it's a grievous sin, it's a public sin, it's out in the open, and so he's got to address this in a public audience, and so he does. He says, this is wrong, the thing you're doing is not good. He tells them, you should fear God. You guys are an embarrassment to God. And then the sixth thing he does is he appeals to them based on his own example. And I don't think Nehemiah did this in order to sort of elevate himself among the people there. But he said two things. In verse 8, he was talking to them about, about the, the slavery business. And he said, me and some of my friends, we've taken our own money, and we, as much as we can. We've been out in the, in, the, in the foreign world, we've been buying back this Jewish slaves. You could redeem a Jewish slave, you just got to go buy them. And so they were using their own money, Nehemiah and some of his friends, to go out and, and buy some of the Jewish slaves back so they could come back and, and live in freedom. In the meantime, these Jewish nobles and officials are taking the slaves... It's payment for the loans these guys couldn't build. And then they're selling them over here to these other nations and taking the money. And EMI is over here on the other side buying them back. So he's using his own example. And then in verse 10, he says that that he and his servants and others had been lending money and grain to the poor. It doesn't say so, but it was obvious that he had been doing so without extracting interest. He's saying, use my example. Yeah, you can loan money. Yes, you can loan grain to these poor people, but you're not supposed to charge interest. And then seventh, and finally, he demanded them uh, to repent and to make restitution. Verses 10 and 11, he says, stop charging interest. He says, give back the interest you already charged. And all those mortgage fields and vineyards and orchards and those things, give it back to them. You shouldn't have that. Give it back. Make it right. Repent and fix it. So what happened? Well, we picked it up in verse 12 of Nehemiah 5. It says, Then they, this is now the officials and the nobles, the guys who were loaning the money and taking them as slaves, they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. We will do as you say. Wow, problem solved. That was easy. But Nehemiah didn't trust these guys as far as he could throw them. So he says, And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from this house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. So Nehemiah went the extra step to hold them accountable. He knew they were probably not very trustworthy people. So he makes them swear an oath in public in the presence of the priests. Then he calls down this little curse on them by shaking out the folds of his garment and says, this is how God will shake you out if you guys go back and don't do what you promise. So he holds them accountable. And the result, well, the result was that there was repentance, there was restitution, These guys gave back the interest they had charged. They gave them back their fields and their houses. And the people were overjoyed. It was a cause for celebration. The division was replaced by rejoicing. It was replaced by worship. They said, praise the Lord, amen. And they worshiped the Lord. And so division was replaced by worship. And we'll see in the coming weeks, the wall building got restarted again. In a short period of time, they finished it. But let's pause there and talk a little bit about application. Application being that whenever you're doing God's work, sin has the ability to hinder that. And we must confront sin head-on and demand repentance. That's the point. Otherwise, sin will cause division and division will cause failure and God's work will fail. So, those of you here this morning, are any of you doing God's work? Some of you might initially say, well, no, I'm, I do this, I do that. I think if you probed yourself a little bit harder, you would find that you are doing God's work or you should be doing God's work. I don't care what occupation you have. All of us should be doing God's work in some way. For example, if you're married, you should be working hard to build a godly marriage, right? That's a building project. I've been building mine for 34 and a half years now. Still building. I try to use the trowel more than the sword. We should all be building a bridge to our unsaved neighbors and family members and co-workers and classmates. All of us should be doing that. We should all be building relationships with non-Christians for the purpose that they might be saved. If you have children, you should be building biblical principles into their lives that they might grow up and become mature and trust in Jesus. If you're a businessman or a businesswoman, you should be, as much as you can, trying to build godly principles into your workplace. And if you serve in a ministry, whether it's watching the children in the nursery or teaching a Sunday school class to the kids or working at VBS or teaching a Sunday school class or working in a food ministry, in whatever ministry it is that you serve, you're using your spiritual gifts. And spiritual gifts are intended to do one thing, is to build up the body of Christ. And that's a godly work. And all those things, no matter what it is that you do, when you're doing God's work, sin has got the ability to hinder that. And so the principle this morning is that we need to root those out. Most of the time, it's our own sins. If you're building a godly marriage, or if you're trying to build a godly marriage, uh, but you have anger issues, you let the, don't, you let the sun go down on your anger all the time. Or if you have a critical spirit, or if you're a wife and you don't allow your husband the authority he has in a biblical manner, or if you're a husband and you allow lust and you look at other women to, to hinder that, those sins are going to wreck any attempt you have to build a godly marriage. you to have to root those out, make them go away. You can't build godly principles and values into your children if you neglect God's word yourself. If you work 65 or 70 hours a week, if you ignore your children and let them run wild, it's not going to work. You can't build a God-honoring place to work if you allow your employees to lie and cheat like that trader I had to fire. I'll tell you another story. It wasn't long after that I fired this trader, uh, one of my guys came to me, Vice President of Trading. His name is Bruce. To sort of preface this story with a little bit of, of information. we, As part of our business, we subscribe to a lot of information. Trading business is all about having all the information. First hand, right there. You got to have it. If you're half an hour late, you're going to miss a sale. You're going to lose money. So there's a company called Platts. They publish this thing called Platts Gas Daily, and they provide a whole bunch of pricing data on a real-time basis. And you subscribe to this. You pay so much dollars a year, and you get this information sent to you. You get it sent to you as an email at the end of every day, and it's got not only news, it's got the day's prices that closed a few hours earlier. And the deal is, you buy a subscription and Platts says, you may read it and you may use it, but you may not forward it by email to someone else and you may not make a photocopy and hand it to someone else. This is for you. And so the rule is, is that if you want to have it, if Bob the trader wants to have it, he needs a subscription. If the guy down the down the hall wants to have it, he needs to have his own subscription too. So. I didn't know this. I don't pay attention to some of those details. Bruce walks in. He says, uh, I got a question. I said, yeah, what? He says, why are you cheating Platts? I said, what? I'm cheating Platts? He said, yeah, you're cheating Platts. I said, "Well, what, what am I doing? How, what am I doing? He said, we've only got one subscription to Platts Gas Daily and we've got 11 traders. Okay. What's happening? He said, well, Bob's getting it, and he's forwarding it on to the 10 other guys, and then he's making a photocopy, and he's putting the photocopy in the kitchen so the guys in the back office can read it too. I go, oh, that's not allowed? He said, no, it's not allowed. The agreement says you got to do it this way. Everybody who wants to read it has got to have their own subscription. I said, okay, guilty as charged. I'm wrong. We can't cheat plants. So what should we do? What do you think we should do, Bruce? Bruce said, well, I don't know. He said, uh... I've worked at six different companies. This is my seventh company. And uh, every company i worked for in the past, uh, that's the way we did it. We just didn't make a big deal out of it. We let it slide. He said, but I know you're trying to build biblical principles into this business, so I thought I might bring it to your attention. He said, uh, so what should we do? He goes, well, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's your call. He said, uh, I think Platts realizes that that's what people do And so that's why they charge such a huge subscription price. But technically, it's not allowed. I said, well, how many subscriptions do we need? He said, well, we need 10 more. I said, well, if we need 10 more, then we should buy 10 more. He said, well, that's what I thought you'd say. Don't you want to know how much money it's going to cost? I said, well, I got a feeling it's pretty large, because otherwise we wouldn't have this conversation. He said it would be about $25,000. I said, let's do it. I said, the price of integrity went up. And we're in the marketing and trading business. We've got to pay the price. And he did. Now, that's not to say that the business I have down there is a perfect business. Don't, don't misunderstand. So, these are just two little examples of ways that we can, we can honor God and root out sin. Unfortunately, in my business, the guy who runs the business, me, is a sinner, and all I've hired is a bunch of other sinners, so uh, it's a difficult thing. But the fact is, is you can't build a God-honoring business if you lie in your income taxes. You can't have a God-honoring business if you're going to cheat Plats out of $25,000 a year. You can't run a God-honoring business if your own behavior is a reflection to the other 40 employees that you don't really care about those things. You can't do that. you got to pay attention to that. If you're late to a business meeting with an important client and you got one of the guys in your car... And you pull up and you're looking at your watch. You're going, oh, crud, I'm late. It's going to take me uh, another five minutes to go all the way to the top where the parking is. You know, So I'm going to park here in this uh, handicapped spot so that uh, we'll make it on time to the important meeting. You can't do that. You've got to get on the ramp and go to the top and you've got to be late. Building a God-honoring business is not an easy thing. But you have to confront it and you've got to root it out. And sometimes it's yourself and sometimes it's other people. And confronting sin in other people takes guts. Nehemiah had guts. I guarantee you, the guys he was confronting were not just a bunch of guys hanging around on the street corner. These guys are officials and nobles. These guys are important and they're powerful. And to confront those guys individually took guts, but to confront those guys publicly in a public forum was near suicidal, because there was a good chance that those guys could have reacted in exactly the opposite way, and got Nehemiah could have got a one-way ticket back to Susa to uh, either have his job as a former, he had his, uh, as a wine taster for the king, or maybe he was going to be one of those jail guards. The fact is, if you see another Christian sinning, we should confront them. And I can say that with authority, because that's what our Bible tells us to do. It's a biblical command, particularly for leaders. First Timothy 5.20. Paul is talking to Timothy, and he's talking about elders who sin. And he says, as for those who persist in sin, that is, as for those elders who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Paul says, take that sin seriously, especially if it's an elder. Rebuke him in public so that the rest of the congregation will know not to go that direction. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, Paul charged Timothy again. He told him to preach the word be ready in season and out of season. Then he told them, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Those are words we don't use too often. It means less scold, reprimand, challenge, correct, urge strongly, warn, advise He's not saying sit on the sidelines and pray about it. He's saying get in there. Make it happen. Jesus said in Luke 17, 3, He said, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Hebrews 3, verse 13 says, But exhort one another every day, As long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Reprove and rebuke and exhort. It's what we do with our children when they're young. For what reason? For what purpose? So that they'll become mature, that they'll become obedient, become children of God. Be good examples to other people. Be more like Jesus. We should do the same thing with our Christian friends when they're adults. Our friends, our co-workers, our Christian neighbors, our Christian relatives. For what purpose? For the same purpose. For the purpose of becoming mature, for being obedient, for being good witnesses. For being more like Jesus. We're told to confront sin. It's a risky business. It isn't always going to turn out the way you think it's going to turn out but we're told to do so. It takes guts to do it. Does our Bible tell us how we are to confront other people about their sin? Yeah, it gives us some pretty clear instructions. We are to confront, but we're supposed to be gentle. We're supposed to speak the truth in love. Our goal is to restore the sinners, not make people angry. Our goal is to get repentance and restitution not to cause division. But we're told to do it. We're told to do it gently. And our Bibles won't say this, but doing it by email is a very bad way of doing that. Do it face to face. Do it in person. Galatians 6, verse 1. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression or in any sin, it says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Spirit of gentleness should do it in love, speak gently, probe carefully. I've discovered in my life that everyone's different. If I were to approach some people, a a gentle, very gentle suggestion that they may be sinning will produce tears and remorse and repentance and restitution and a 180-degree turnaround. With other people, you need to be a little stronger. A gentle rebuke to some people will be like a pea shooter... To a charging rhinoceros, it won't have much effect. Some of those people, you need to hit them with a very gentle, and then you hit a, need to hit them with a sharp rebuke, and then you need to hit them with a two by four. And the two by four is a biblical principle. Should we go see? Paul had made several journeys to this church called Corinth. Corinth. In our Bibles, of all the churches mentioned, has got more problems, had more problems than anybody could imagine. And so he wrote them a couple of letters. Actually, he wrote them four letters, too, which are in our Bible. But in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 21, he was going to go there and he was going to, knew he was gonna to have to rebuke them for some sins. And so he asked them a question: Do you want me to do the gentle method, or do you want me to bring my two by four? That's what it says. It says, What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? Okay, or a two-by-four, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? You choose. I will come to you in a spirit of gentleness if you will repent and change, and if you don't, I will come with a rod or a two-by-four. Another principle is that we should make sure that we're not guilty of the same sin. If you're a gossip, don't correct somebody else about being a gossip. If you've got anger issues, don't go to someone else with your anger issues. That's a biblical principle. Jesus says so in Matthew chapter 7, verse 4 and 5. He says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log, anger, gossip, slander, lust. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And if the sin that you're talking about happens to be sin that's directed directly at you, right? A different, a special kind of sin where someone is sinning but the sin is against you. We have a very biblical principle in Matthew chapter 18 about how to handle that. The process is pretty straightforward. You go to them one-on-one. You don't talk to a bunch of other people about it. You don't gossip. You go to them one-on-one and you confront them about that. With the goal of reconciliation. Reconciliation. If reconciliation doesn't happen, then you're told to take two other people with you. And if that doesn't happen, then you should bring it to the church. But what's the goal? What's the goal in this? What's the goal in confronting people about their sins? Well, the goal is that whether it's your own sin or whether it's somebody else's sin is repentance. And repentance means to change your mind. It means not only to change your mind, but also to change your behavior. To stop sinning. Stop gossiping about your sister. Stop slandering your boss. stop going home early from the office when the boss is out of town stop holding a grudge stop cheating on your taxes stop parking illegally when you're late for a meeting stop surfing for pornography stop being critical of other people you name it we're a bunch of sinners and what's the purpose? The purpose is to get that sin out to restore unity to clear God's name maintain purity in the church to be a positive witness to those around us to root out that sin bottom line sin will hinder the work that God wants us to do we must confront it directly and repent let's pray Lord God I thank you for your word I thank you for the book of Nehemiah and for the practical examples It gives us of godly, biblical principles on how we should be, Lord God. I pray that this morning, as you have worked on my heart all week, that your Holy Spirit would speak to others, that we would root out the sin in our own lives first, Lord God, that we'd be take seriously your call to root sin out of our lives, that we might be effective in the work that we do for you. And then, Lord, give us the guts as well as the spirit of gentleness that's necessary for us to confront others about their sins. Help us not to be hypocritical in any way in that process. Help us to be prayerful. Help us not to gossip or slander. Help us, Lord, to do all things for your honor and for your glory. We thank you, Lord God, that you've given us the Holy Spirit who lives in our hearts, that allows us the power, enables us to do these kinds of things. Pray, Lord God, that you would work your way in us that we might be the children of God that you want us to be. All for your glory and for your honor. We pray all this in the powerful and precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.